From the Conference Center at Temple Square in Salt Lake City, this is the Saturday morning session of the 187th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with speakers selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. Music for this session is provided by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Members and officers of the church gather from all areas of the world to receive counsel and instruction from their church leaders. This broadcast is furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. President Dieter F. Uchtdorf, second counselor in the First Presidency of the Church, will conduct this session. Brothers and sisters, dear friends, we welcome you to the Saturday morning session of the 187th Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It is a beautiful day here in Salt Lake City, and we extend a warm welcome to members and friends participating in the conference throughout the world. We salute you and send our love and greetings and best wishes to all of you. Our dear prophet, President Thomas S. Monson, has asked that I conduct this session. We acknowledge the general authorities and the general officers of the Church who will be in attendance throughout the conference. The music for this session will be provided by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir under the direction of Mac Wilberg and Ryan Murphy with Clay Christiansen and Richard Elliott at the organ. The choir opened this meeting with the morning breaks and will now favor us with Let Zion in Her Beauty Rise. The invocation will then be offered by Elder Kim B. Clark of the 70, after which the choir will sing Do What is Right.
Our Father in heaven, we are grateful, Father, for thy many blessings. We thank thee, Father, for thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for his atoning sacrifice, for his mercy, his justice, his grace, and his love. Father, please bless us with thy Spirit in this meeting, that all who speak and all who hear and read may do so under the direction of the Holy Ghost. We pray, Father, that will bless this meeting, that it will be a time of renewal and commitment, a time of hope and encouragement and warning, and a time of hope and peace and love. We ask for this blessing, Father, and offer this prayer in the name of thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Thank you, choir. We will now be pleased to hear from President Henry B. Eyring, First Counselor in the First Presidency. He will be followed by Brother M. Joseph Bruff, Second Counselor in the Young Men General Presidency. Elder Weatherford T. Clayton of the Seventy will then address us. President Eyring. My dear brothers and sisters, I rejoice at the opportunity to be with you at the beginning of this session of General Conference. I welcome you most warmly. General Conference has always been a time of gathering for the Latter-day Saints. We have long since outgrown the ability to gather physically in one place, but the Lord has provided ways for the blessings of General Conference to reach out to you, no matter where you are. While it is impressive to see the gathering of saints in this large conference center, we who stand at this pulpit always have in our mind's eye the millions of people who are gathered with us around the world to watch and listen to the conference. Many of you are gathered with your families. Some may be gathered with friends or fellow Church members. Wherever you are and however you are hearing my voice, please know that even though you are not with us in person, we feel that you are with us in spirit. We hope all of you will feel one with us, that you will feel the spiritual power that comes whenever a body of believers gathers in the name of Jesus Christ. I have felt impressed to speak to you today about another kind of gathering. This kind does not happen only every six months, as General Conference does. Instead, it has been going on continuously since the early days of the restoration of the Church, and it has been hastening in recent years. I refer to the gathering of the family of God. To describe this gathering, it may be best to begin before we were born, before what the Bible calls the beginning. At that time, we lived with Heavenly Father as His spirit children. This is true of every person who has ever lived on earth. You see, the names brother and sister are not just friendly greetings or terms of endearment for us. They are an expression of an eternal truth. God is the literal Father of all mankind. We are each part of His eternal family because He loves us with the love of a perfect Father. He wants us to progress and advance and become like Him. He ordained a plan by which we would come to earth in families and have experiences that would prepare us to return to Him and live as He lives. The central element of this plan was the promise that Jesus Christ would offer Himself as a sacrifice to rescue us from sin and death. Our task in that plan is to accept the Savior's sacrifice by obeying the laws and ordinances of the gospel. You and I accepted this plan, 
In fact, we rejoiced in it, even though it would mean that we would leave the presence of our Father and forget what we had experienced there with Him. But we were not sent here completely in the dark. Each of us was given a portion of God's light, called the light of Christ, to help us distinguish between good and evil, right and wrong. This is why even those who live with little or no knowledge of the Father's plan can still sense in their hearts that certain actions are just and moral, while others are not. Our sense of right and wrong seems especially keen when we are raising our children. Innate in almost every parent is the desire to teach their children moral virtues. This is part of the miracle of Heavenly Father's plan. He wants His children to come to earth following the eternal pattern of families that exists in heaven. Families are the basic organizational unit of the eternal realms, and so He attends for them also to be the basic unit on earth. Though earthly families are far from perfect, they give God's children the best chance to be welcomed to the world with the only love on earth that comes close to what we felt in heaven—parental love. Families are also the best way to preserve and pass on moral virtues and true principles that are most likely to lead us back to God's presence. Now, only a very small minority of God's children obtain, during this life, a complete understanding of God's plan, along with access to the priesthood ordinances and covenants that make the Savior's atoning power fully operative in our lives. Even those with the best of parents may live faithfully according to the life they have but never hear about Jesus Christ and His Atonement or be invited to be baptized in His name. This has been true for countless millions of our brothers and sisters throughout the world's history. Now, some may consider this unfair. They may, they may even take it as evidence that there is no plan, no specific requirements for salvation, feeling that a just, loving God would not create a plan that is available to such a small proportion of His children. Others might conclude that God must have determined in advance which of His children He would save and made the gospel available to them, while those who never heard the gospel simply were not chosen. But you and I know. Because of the truths restored through the prophet Joseph Smith, that God's plan is much more loving and just than that. Our Heavenly Father is anxious to gather and bless all of His family. While He knows that not all of them will choose to be gathered, His plan gives each of His children the opportunity to accept or reject His invitation. And families are at the heart of this plan. Centuries ago, the prophet Malachi said that in a coming day, God would send Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. This prophecy was so important, the Savior quoted it when He visited the Americas after His resurrection. And when the angel Moroni visited the prophet Joseph Smith, he too quoted the prophecy about Elijah and hearts, fathers, and children.
Today is April 1st. Two days from now, April 3rd, marks the 181st year from the day when Malachi's prophecy was fulfilled. On that day, Elijah did come, and he gave to Joseph Smith the priesthood power to seal families eternally. From that day to this, interest in exploring one's family history has grown exponentially. At ever-increasing rates, people seem drawn to their ancestry with more than just casual curiosity. Genealogical libraries, associations, and technologies have emerged around the world to support this interest. The Internet's power to enhance communications has enabled families to work together to do family history research with a speed and thoroughness never before possible. Why is all of this happening? For a lack of a better term, we call it the spirit of Elijah. We could also call it equally fulfillment of prophecy. I bear testimony that Elijah did come. The hearts of the children of you and me have turned to our fathers, our ancestors. The affection you feel for your ancestors is part of the fulfillment of that prophecy. It is deeply seated in your sense of who you are, but it has to do with more than just inherited DNA. For example, as you follow the promptings to learn about your family history, you may discover that a distant relative shares some of your facial characteristics or your interest in books or your talent for singing. This could be very interesting and even insightful. But if your work stops there, you will sense that something is missing. This is because to gather and unite God's family requires more than just warm feelings. It requires sacred covenants made in connection with priesthood ordinances. Many of your ancestors did not receive those ordinances. But in the providence of God, you did. And God knew that you would feel drawn to your ancestors in love and that you would have the technology necessary to identify them. He also knew that you would live in a time when access to holy temples where the ordinances can be performed would be greater than ever in history. And he knew that he could trust you to accomplish this work in behalf of your ancestors. Now, of course, all of us have many pressing and important responsibilities that need our attention and time. All of us find parts of what the Lord expects us to do beyond our abilities. Fortunately, the Lord provides a way for each, us, each of us to gain confidence, confidence and satisfaction in all our service, including family history service. We gain strength to do what He asks through our faith that the Savior gives no commandment save He shall prepare a way for us that we may accomplish the thing which He commandeth. I know this is true from experience. Many years ago, a long time ago, as a university student, I met a man who worked for one of the largest computer companies in the world. This was in the early days of computing, and it just so happened that his company had sent him to sell computers to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.
As far as I could tell, this salesman had no religious faith. Yet he said with wonder and exasperation, quote, In this church, they were doing what they called genealogy, searching for the names of people who are dead, trying to identify their ancestors. People, mostly women, were running around between filing cabinets searching through little cards for information. If I remember right, he said the ladies were wearing tennis shoes so they could run a little faster. (laughs) The man went on as I, I saw the magnitude of what they were trying to do. I realized that I had discovered the reason for the invention of computers. Well, he was partially right. Computers would be an important part of the future of family history work, just not the computers he was selling. An inspired leader of the Church chose not to buy his computers. The Church was to wait for technology that at that time had not yet even been imagined. But I have learned in the many years since that even the best technology can never be a substitute for revelation from heaven, like the kind that Church leader received. This is a spiritual work, and the Lord directs it through His Holy Spirit. Just a few weeks ago, I was working on my family history with a consultant by my side and another helper on the phone. On the computer screen before me was a problem beyond my mortal power to solve. As I understand it, I saw two names sent to me by the wonders of technology of people who might be waiting for a temple ordinance. But the trouble was the names were different, but there was a reason to believe they might be the same person. My task was to determine what was true. I asked my consultants to tell me. They said, no, you must choose. And they were completely sure I would discover the truth. The computer, with all its power and information, had left me the blessing of staring at those names on a screen, evaluating the available information, seeking other research, praying silently and discovering what was true. As I prayed, I knew with surety what to do, just as I have in other situations when I needed to rely on Heaven's help to solve a problem. Now, we do not know what marvels God will inspire people to create to help in His work of gathering His family. But whatever the marvelous inventions may may be that come, their use will require the Spirit working in people like you and me. This should not surprise us. After all, these are beloved sons and daughters of God. He will send whatever inspiration is needed to give them the opportunity to return to Him. In recent years, the youth of the Church have responded to the spirit of Elijah in an inspiring way. Many now hold their own limited-use temple recommend and use it often. Temple baptistries are busier than ever. Some temples have even had to adjust their schedules to accommodate the increase in the number of young people attending the temple. It used to be a rare but welcome exception for youth to bring the names of their own ancestors to the temple. Now this is the norm, and very often it is the young people themselves who found those ancestors. In addition, many youth have discovered that giving of their time to do family history research and temple work has deepened their testimony of the plan of salvation. 
It has increased the influence of the Spirit in their lives and decreased the influence of the adversary. It has helped them feel closer to their families and closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. They have learned that this work saves not just the dead, it saves all of us. The youth have caught the vision admirably. Now their parents need to catch up. There are now many people who have accepted baptism in the spirit world because of the work done by the youth, and they are waiting for other ordinances that only adults can perform in temples in this world. The work of gathering Heavenly Father's family is not just for young people, and it is not just for grandparents. It is for everyone. We are all gatherers. This is the work of our generation. What the Apostle Paul called the dispensation of the fullness of times when he said God would gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. This is made possible through the atoning work of God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Because of him, our family members, who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who had made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. You have felt this, as I have, when you have experienced an increase of love. As you looked at the picture of an ancestor, you have felt it in the temple when the name on a card seemed like more than a name and you couldn't help but sense that this person was aware of you and felt your love. I testify that God the Father wants His children home, again, in families and in glory. The Savior lives. He directs and blesses this work, and He watches over and guides us. He thanks you for your faithful service in gathering His Father's family, and I promise you the inspired help that you seek and need. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. One of Heavenly Father's most beloved tools in guiding his children is righteous grandparents. My father's mother was such a woman. On an occasion that took place when I was too young to remember, my father was disciplining me. Observing this correction, my grandmother said, Monty, I believe you are correcting him too harshly. My father replied, Mother, I will correct my children as I want. And my wise grandmother softly stated, And so will I. I'm pretty sure my father heard the wise guidance of his mother that day. When thinking of guidance, we might think of a hymn we all know and love, I Am a Child of God. In the chorus, we find the words, Lead me, guide me, walk beside me, help me find the way. Until recently, I understood that chorus to be divine direction to parents. While pondering these words, I realized that while they contain that direction, there exists a far greater meaning. Individually, we each plead daily that Heavenly Father will guide us, lead us, and walk beside us. President Dieter F. Uchtdorf explained, Our Father in Heaven knows His children's needs better than anyone else. It is His work and glory to help us at every turn, giving us marvelous temporal and spiritual resources to help us on our path to return to Him. Listen to those words. 
Heavenly Father knows what you and I need better than anyone else. As a result, He has developed a personal care package suited to each one of us. It has many components. It includes His Son and the Atonement, the Holy Ghost, commandments, scriptures, prophets, apostles, parents, grandparents, local church leaders, and many others, all to help us return to live with Him someday. May I share today just a few of the components of the care package that have made me recognize that a loving Father is leading, guiding, and walking beside me and my family. My prayer is that each of you will recognize in your experiences that Heavenly Father is leading, guiding, and walking beside you, and with that knowledge you will proceed with confidence, knowing you are never really alone. Heavenly Father's commandments are key components of the care package. Alma declared, Wickedness never was happiness. Tolerating improper behavior without loving correction is false compassion and reinforces the common notion that wickedness might in fact be happiness. Samuel the Lamanite clearly countered this notion. Ye have sought for happiness in doing iniquity, which thing is contrary to the nature of that righteousness which is in our great and eternal head. Through his prophets, Heavenly Father constantly reminds us that righteousness is happiness. King Benjamin, for example, taught that Heavenly Father doth require that ye should do as he hath commanded you, for which if ye do, he doth immediately bless you. From another hymn comes a similar reminder, Keep the commandments, keep the commandments. In this there is safety, in this there is peace. He will send blessings. Around my 14th birthday, I learned about some of these blessings. I noticed different behavior on the part of my parents. Considering what I observed, I asked, Are we going on a mission? The shock on my mother's face confirmed my suspicion. Later in family council, my siblings and I learned that our parents had been called to preside over a mission. We lived on a beautiful ranch in Wyoming. From my perspective, life was perfect. I could come home from school, complete my chores, and be off hunting, fishing, or exploring with my dog. Shortly after learning of the calling, I realized that I would have to give up my dog, Blue. I confronted my father asking what I would, should do with Blue. I wanted to emphasize the unfairness of what God was requiring. I will never forget this response. He said, I'm not sure. He probably cannot go with us, so you had better ask Heavenly Father. That was not the response I had anticipated. I began reading the Book of Mormon. I earnestly prayed to know if I had to give my dog away. My answer did not come in a moment. Rather, a specific thought kept penetrating my mind. Don't be a burden to your parents. Don't be a burden. I have called your parents. I knew what Heavenly Father required. That knowledge did not reduce the pain of giving my dog away. However, through that small sacrifice, my heart softened, and I found peace in seeking Heavenly Father's will. I thank my Heavenly Father for the blessings and happiness I found through the scriptures, prayer, the Holy Ghost, and a worthy earthly father who embraced his role as a principal gospel teacher of his children. They were leading me, guiding me, and even walking beside me to help me find the way, especially when I had to do something difficult. In addition to having the care package components I've mentioned, we are each blessed with a priesthood leader to lead and guide us. President Boyd K. Packer said, Bishops are inspired. Each of us has agency to accept or reject counsel from our leaders. But never disregard the counsel of your bishop. 
whether given over the pulpit or individually. These men strive to represent the Lord, whether we are old or young. When Satan wants us to think all is lost, bishops are there to guide us. When speaking with bishops, I have found a common theme regarding confessions of disobedience or the innocent sufferings from terrible wrongs. Bishops instantly want to express Heavenly Father's love for the individual and a desire to walk beside him or her as he or she finds the way home. Perhaps Heavenly Father's greatest care package component is described in these words, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. To teach us all that we must do, Jesus Christ led the way by giving the perfect example that we must try to emulate. He pleads with us, with outstretched arms, to come, follow Him. And when we fail, which we all do, He reminds us, For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. What a wonderful gift! Repentance is not a punishment. It is a privilege. It is a privilege that leads and guides us. No wonder the scriptures declare that we should teach nothing save repentance. Heavenly Father has many resources, but often He uses another person to assist Him. Daily, He gives us opportunities to lead, guide, and walk beside one in need. We must follow the example of the Savior. We, too, must be about Heavenly Father's work. As the Young Men General Presidency, we know that youth are blessed when they have parents and leaders who act for Heavenly Father in leading, guiding, and walking beside them. Three principles that will help us become part of Heavenly Father's care package for others are, first, be with the youth. President Henry B. Eyring emphasized this point. There are some things we can do that could matter most. Even more powerful than using words in teaching the doctrine will be our examples of living the doctrine. To lead youth requires being with them. Devoted time is an expression of love that allows us to teach by word and example. Second, to truly guide youth, we must connect them with heaven. The time always comes when each must stand alone. Only Heavenly Father can be there to guide at all times and in all places. Our youth must know how to seek Heavenly Father's guidance. Third, we must let youth lead. Like the loving parent who holds the hand of a toddler learning to walk, we must let go in order for youth to progress. Letting youth lead requires patience and love. It is harder and takes more time than doing it ourselves. They may stumble along the way, but we walk beside them. Brothers and sisters, there will be times in our lives when the blessings of guidance seem distant or lacking. For such times of distress, Elder D. Todd Christofferson promised, Let your covenants be paramount and let your obedience be exact. Then you can ask in faith, nothing wavering, according to your need, and God will answer. He will sustain you as you work and watch. In His own time and way, He will stretch forth His hand to you, saying, Here am I. At one such time I sought Heavenly Father's counsel through constant heartfelt prayer for more than a year to find the solution to a difficult situation. I knew logically that Heavenly Father answers all sincere prayers. Yet I reached such desperation one day that I attended the temple with one question. Heavenly Father, do you really care? I was sitting near the back of the Logan, Utah Temple waiting room when, to my surprise, entering the room that day was the temple president, Von J. Featherstone, a close family friend. 
He stood at the front of the congregation and welcomed all of us. When he noticed me among the temple patrons, he stopped speaking, looked me in the eyes, and then said, Brother Broth, it is good to see you in the temple today. I will never forget the feeling of that simple moment. It was as if, in that greeting, Heavenly Father was stretching forth his hand and saying, Here am I. Heavenly Father really does care and listen to and answer every child's prayer. As one of his children, I know the answer to my prayers came in the Lord's time. And through that experience, I understood more than ever that we are children of God and that He has sent us here so that we can feel His presence now and return to live with Him someday. I testify that Heavenly Father does lead us, guide us, and walk beside us. As we follow His Son and give heed to His servants, the apostles and prophets, we will find the way to eternal life. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Early in my training as a physician, I had the privilege of helping a young mother deliver her first child. She was calm, focused, and happy. When the baby was delivered, I handed the precious newborn to her. With tears of happiness streaming down her face, she took that brand new baby into her arms and examined him from head to toe. She held him close and loved him as only a mother can. It was a privilege to be in that room with her. Such was the beginning of life for each of us. Yet was our birth truly the beginning? The world sees birth and death as the beginning and the end. But because of God's holy plan, we know that birth and death are actually just milestones on our journey to eternal life with our Heavenly Father. They are essential parts of our Father's plan, sacred moments where mortality and heaven intersect. Today, reflecting on what I've learned from observing birth and death through my years of medical practice and church service, I want to testify of our Father's glorious plan. Before we were born, we lived with God, the Father of our spirits. All of us on earth are literally brothers and sisters in His family, and each of us is precious to Him. We lived with Him for eons of time before our mortal birth, learning, choosing, and preparing. Because Heavenly Father loves us, He wants us to have the greatest gift He can give, the gift of eternal life. He could not simply give us this gift. We had to receive it by choosing Him and His ways. This required that we leave His presence and begin a wonderful and challenging journey of faith, growth, and becoming. The journey our Father prepared for us is called the plan of salvation or the plan of happiness. In the Grand Premortal Council, our Father told us about His plan. When we understood it, we were so happy that we shouted for joy and the morning stars sang together. That plan is built upon three grand pillars, the pillars of eternity. The first pillar is the creation of the earth, the setting for our mortal journey. The second pillar is the fall of our first earthly parents, Adam and Eve. Because of the fall, some marvelous things were given to us. We were able to be born and receive a physical body. 
I will be forever grateful to my mother for bringing my brothers and me into the world and teaching us about God. God also gave us moral agency, the ability and privilege of choosing and acting for ourselves. To help us choose well, Heavenly Father gave us commandments. Each day, as we keep His commandments, we show God that we love Him, and He blesses our lives. Knowing that we would not always choose well, or in other words, sin, Father gave us the third pillar, the Savior Jesus Christ and His Atonement. Through His suffering, Christ paid the price for both physical death and sin. He taught For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, always keeping his Father's commandments. He walked the roads of Palestine, teaching the truths of eternity, healing the sick, causing the blind to see, and raising the dead. He went about doing good and entreated all to follow his example. At the end of his mortal life, he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Christ helps us better understand the magnitude of his suffering when he told the prophet Joseph Smith, I, God, have suffered these things for all that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I, which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore and to suffer both body and spirit. There, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he began to pay the price for our sins and our sicknesses, our pains and our infirmities. Because he did, we will never be alone in those infirmities if we choose to walk with him. He was arrested and condemned on spurious charges, convicted to satisfy a mob, and sentenced to die on Calvary's cross. On the cross, He gave up his life to atone for the sins of all mankind in a great vicarious gift in behalf of all who would ever live upon the earth. He declared, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. And behold, I am the light and the life of the world, and I have drunk out of that bitter cup which the Father hath given me and have glorified the Father in taking upon me the sins of the world. Then on the first day of the week, he rose from the tomb with a perfect resurrected body, never to die again. And because he did, so will we. I testify that Christ did indeed rise from the tomb. But to rise from that tomb, he first had to die, and so must we. Another of the great blessings of my life has been to feel the closeness of heaven during those moments when I sit at the bedside of people as they pass away. 
Early one morning, some years ago, I entered the hospital room of a faithful Latter-day Saint widow who had cancer. Two of her daughters were sitting with her. As I went to her bedside, I quickly discovered that she was no longer suffering because she had just died. In that moment of death, the room was filled with peace. Her daughters had a sweet sadness, but their hearts were filled with faith. They knew their mother was not gone, but had returned home. Even in our moments of deepest grief, in the moments when time stands still and life seems so unfair, we can find comfort in our Savior because he suffered as well. It was a privilege for me to be in that room. When we die, our spirits leave our bodies and we go to the next stage of our journey, the spirit world. It is a place of learning, repentance, forgiveness, and becoming where we await the resurrection. On some future great day, everyone who has ever been born will rise from the tomb. Our spirits and our physical bodies will be reunited in their perfect form. Everyone will be resurrected, both old and young, both male and female, both the wicked and the righteous. And everything shall be restored to its perfect frame. After the resurrection, we will have the supreme blessing of being judged by our Savior who said, I will draw all men unto me that they may be judged according to their works. And it shall come to pass that whoso repenteth and is baptized in my name shall be filled. And if he endureth to the end, behold, him will I hold guiltless before my Father at that day when I shall stand to judge the world. And then through Christ and his atonement, all who choose to follow him through faith, repentance, baptism, receiving the Holy Ghost and enduring to the end, will find that their journey's end is to receive their divine destiny as heirs of eternal life. They will return to their Father's presence to live with him forever. May we choose well. There is so much more to our existence than just what happens between birth and death. I invite you to come and follow Christ. I invite all members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to each day come unto Christ and be perfected in Him and deny yourselves of all ungodliness that through the shedding of the blood of Christ you may become holy without spot. I invite those who are not yet members of this church to come and read the Book of Mormon and listen to the missionaries. Come and have faith and repent of your sins. Come and be baptized and receive the Holy Ghost. Come and live a happy Christ-filled life. As you come to Him and keep His commandments, I promise that you can find peace and purpose in this often tumultuous mortal experience and eternal life in the world to come. For those who have experienced these truths and for whatever reason have wandered away, I invite you to come back. Come back today. 
Our Father and the Savior love you. I testify that Christ has the power to answer your questions, heal your pains and sorrows, and forgive your sins. I know this is true. I know that all these things are true. Christ lives. This is his church. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you, brethren. The congregation will now join the choir in singing Glory to God on High. After the singing, we will be pleased to hear from Elder Dale G. Renland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He will be followed by Elder Ulysses Soares of the Presidency of the Seventy. Elder Mark A. Bragg of the Seventy will then address us. Following his remarks, the choir will sing, Teach Me to Walk in the Light. This is the 187th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You're listening to the 187th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on KSL-FM Midvale, KSL Salt Lake City. We get a glimpse into our Heavenly Father's character as we recognize the immense compassion He has for sinners and appreciate the distinction He makes between sin and those who sin. This glimpse helps us have a more correct understanding of His character. 
perfections, and attributes, and is foundational to exercising faith in Him and in His Son, Jesus Christ. The Savior's compassion in the face of our imperfections draws us toward Him and motivates us in our repeated struggles to repent and emulate Him. As we become more like Him, we learn to treat others as He does, regardless of any outward characteristic or behavior. The impact of distinguishing between the outward characteristics of an individual and the individual himself is central to the novel Les Miserables by the French author Victor Hugo. As the novel opens, the narrator introduces Bienvenue Muriel, the Bishop of Digne, and discusses a dilemma facing the bishop. Should he visit a man who is an avowed atheist and is despised in the community because of his past behavior in the French Revolution? The narrator states that the bishop could naturally feel a deep aversion for the man. Then the narrator poses a simple question. All the same, should the scabs of the sheep cause the shepherd to recoil? Answering for the bishop, the narrator provides a definitive answer, no, and then adds a humorous comment, but what a sheep. In this passage, Hugo compares the man's wickedness with skin disease in sheep and compares the bishop with a shepherd who does not withdraw when faced with a sheep that is sick. The bishop is sympathetic and later in the novel demonstrates a similar compassion for another man, the main protagonist in the novel, a degraded ex-convict Jean Valjean. The bishop's mercy and empathy motivate Jean Valjean to change the course of his life. Since God uses disease as a metaphor for sin throughout the scriptures, it's reasonable to ask, how does Jesus Christ react when faced with our metaphorical diseases, our sins. After all, the Savior said that he cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. So how can he look at us, imperfect as we are, without recoiling in horror and disgust? The answer is simple and clear. As the Good Shepherd Jesus Christ views disease in his sheep as a condition that needs treatment, care, and compassion. This shepherd, our good shepherd, finds joy in seeing his diseased sheep progress toward healing. The Savior foretold that he would feed his flock like a shepherd, seek out that which is lost, bring again that which is driven away, bind up that which is broken, and strengthen that which is sick. Though apostate Israel was depicted as being consumed with sinful wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, the Savior encouraged, exhorted, and promised healing. The Savior's mortal ministry was indeed characterized by love, compassion, and empathy. He did not disdainfully walk the dusty roads of Galilee and Judea flinching at the sight of sinners. He did not dodge them in abject horror. 
No, he ate with them. He helped and blessed, lifted and edified, and replaced fear and despair with hope and joy. Like the true shepherd he is, he seeks us and finds us to offer relief and hope. Understanding his compassion and love helps us exercise faith in him to repent and be healed. The Gospel of John records the effect of the Savior's empathy on a sinner. Scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in the very act of adultery to the Savior. The accusers implied that she should be stoned in compliance with the law of Moses. Jesus, in response to persistent questioning, finally said to them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. The accusers departed, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Surely the Savior did not condone adultery. But he also did not condemn the woman. He encouraged her to reform her life. She was motivated to change because of his compassion and mercy. The Joseph Smith translation of the Bible attests to her resultant discipleship. And the woman glorified God from that hour and believed on his name. While God is empathetic, we should not mistakenly believe that he is accepting and open-minded about sin. He is not. The Savior came to earth to save us from our sins and, importantly, will not save us in our sins. A skilled interrogator, Zeezrom, once tried to trap Amulek by asking, Shall the coming Messiah save his people in their sins? And Amulek said unto him, I say unto you, He shall not, for it is impossible for him to deny his word. He cannot save them in their sins. Amulek spoke a fundamental truth that to be saved from our sins, we must abide the conditions of repentance, which unleash the Redeemer's power to save our souls. The Savior's compassion, love, and mercy draw us toward Him. Through His Atonement, we're no longer satisfied with our sinful state. God is clear about what's right and acceptable to Him and what is wrong and sinful. This is not because He desires to have mindless, obedient followers. No, our Heavenly Father desires that His children knowingly and willingly choose to become like Him and qualify for the kind of life He enjoys. In doing so, His children fulfill their divine destiny and become heirs to all that He has. For this reason, Church leaders cannot alter God's commandments or doctrine, contrary to His will, to be convenient or popular. However, in our lifelong quest to follow Jesus Christ, His example of kindness to those who sin is particularly instructive.
We who are sinners must, like the Savior, reach out to others with compassion and love. Our role is also to help and bless, lift and edify, and replace fear and despair with hope and joy. The Savior rebuked individuals who recoiled from others that they viewed as unclean and who self-righteously judged others as more sinful than they. That is the pointed lesson the Savior directed to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. He spoke this parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank Thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus then concluded, I tell you, this man, the publican, went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. The message for us is clear. A repenting sinner draws closer to God than does the self-righteous person who condemns that sinner. The human tendency to be self-righteous and judgmental was also present in Alma's day. As the people began to establish the Church more fully, the Church began to wax proud, and the people of the Church began to be lifted up in the pride of their eyes. They began to be scornful one toward another, and they began to persecute those that did not believe according to their own will and pleasure. This persecution was specifically prohibited. Now, there was a strict law among the people of the Church that there should not any man belonging to the Church arise and persecute those that did not belong to the Church, and that there should be no persecution among themselves. The guiding principle for Latter-day Saints is the same. We must not be guilty of persecuting anyone inside or outside the Church. Those who have been persecuted for any reason know what unfairness and bigotry feel like. As a teenager living in Europe in the 1960s, I felt that I was repeatedly picked on and bullied because I was an American and because I was a member of the Church. Some of my schoolmates treated me as though I were personally responsible for unpopular U.S. foreign policies. I was also treated as though my religion were an affront to the nations in which I lived because it differed from state-sponsored religion. Later, in various countries across the world, I have had small glimpses into the ugliness of prejudice and discrimination suffered by those who are targeted because of their race or ethnicity. Persecution comes in many forms ridicule, harassment, bullying, 
exclusion and isolation, or hatred toward another. We must guard against bigotry that raises its ugly voice toward those who hold different opinions. Bigotry manifests itself in part in unwillingness to grant equal freedom of expression. Everyone, including people of religion, has the right to express his or her opinions in the public square. But no one has a license to be hateful towards others as those opinions are expressed. Church history gives ample evidence of our members being treated with hatred and bigotry. How ironically sad it would be if we were to treat others as we have been treated. The Savior taught, Whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For us to ask for respect, we must be respectful. Furthermore, our genuine conversion brings meekness and lowliness of heart, which invites the Holy Ghost and fills us with perfect love and unfeigned love for others. Our Good Shepherd is unchanging and feels the same way today about sin and sinners as He did when He walked the earth. He does not recoil from us because we sin, even if He on occasion must think, but what a sheep. He loves us so much that He provided the way for us to repent and become clean so we can return to Him and our Heavenly Father. In doing so, Jesus Christ also set the example for us to follow, to show respect to all and hatred toward none. As His disciples, let us fully mirror His love and love one another so openly and completely that no one feels abandoned, alone, or hopeless. I testify that Jesus Christ is our Good Shepherd who loves and cares for us. He knows us and laid down His life for His sheep. He also lives for us and wants us to know Him and exercise faith in Him. I love and adore Him and am profoundly grateful for Him. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Dear brothers and sisters, I want to begin my message today by testifying that I know that President Thomas S. Monson is the prophet of God in our day. His counselors in the First Presidency and the Twelve Apostles are also, in fact, prophets, seers, and revelators. They represent the Lord Jesus Christ and have the right to declare His mind and will as it is revealed to them. I testify that there is safety in following their counsel. The Lord is inspiring them to emphasize straightening our faith in Heavenly Father and in, in His Son Jesus Christ and in His atonement, so that we will not waver as we face the challenges of our day. In the Book of Mormon, we read about a man named Amon who was sent from the land of Zarahemla to the land of Lehi-Nephi to inquire concerning their brethren. There he found King Limhi and his people 
who were in the bondage to the Lamanites. King Limhi was encouraged by the things Amon shared with him about his people in Zarahemla. His heart was filled with such great hope and joy that he gathered his people to the temple and said, Therefore, lift up your heads and rejoice and put your trust in God if we turn to the Lord with full purpose of heart and serve Him with all diligence of mind, He will, according to His own will and pleasure, deliver you out of bondage. The faith of, of King Limhi's people was so profoundly affected by the words of Amen that they made a covenant with God to serve Him, to keep His commandments, regardless of their difficult circumstances. Because of their faith, they were able to devise a plan to escape from the hands of the Lamanites. Brothers and sisters, please consider the importance of the invitation King Nehi gave to his people and its relevance to us. He said, Lift up your heads and rejoice, and put your trust in God. With these words, Limhi invited his people to look to the future through the eyes of faith, to replace their fears with the optimism of hope born of faith, and to not waver in placing their trust in God regardless of circumstance. Motor life is a period of testing where we will be proven to see if we do all things that the Lord our God shall command us. This will require an unwavering faith in Christ even in times of great difficulty. It will require that we press forward with steadfast faith in Christ, being led by the Spirit and trusting that God will provide for our needs. At the conclusion of his earthly ministry, just before being taken prisoner, the Savior taught his disciples, In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Ponder with me for a moment. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father, lived a sinless life and overcame all the temptations, pains, challenges, and afflictions of the world. He shed drops of blood in Gethsemane. He suffered terrible pain beyond any power of description. He took upon Himself our pains and sicknesses. He stands ready to help, to help each of us with every burden. Through His life, suffering, death, and resurrection, He removed every impediment to our rejoicing and finding peace on this earth. The benefit of His atoning sacrifice are extended to all those who accept Him and deny themselves, and to those who take up His cross and follow Him as His true disciples. Therefore, as we exercise faith in Jesus Christ and in His Atonement, we will be strengthened, our burdens will be eased, and through Him we will overcome the world. Brothers and sisters, as we contemplate the strength and hope that we can receive from the Savior, we do have reason to lift up our heads, rejoice, and press forward in faith without wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. King Lehi likewise urged, Turn to the Lord with full purpose of heart. Serve Him with all diligence of mind. 
If ye do this, he will, according to his own will and pleasure, deliver you out of bondage. Listen to the Savior's own words as he entreated us. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. If ye love me, keep my commandments. He that hath my commandments and keep them, he is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. God bless us according to our faith. Faith is the source of living with divine purpose and eternal perspective. Faith is a practical principle that inspires diligence. It is a vital living force manifesting our positive attitude and desire to willingly do everything that God and Jesus Christ asks of us. It takes us to our knees to implore the Lord for guidance and to arise and act with confidence to achieve things consistent with His will. Years ago, <clears throat> while serving as a mission president, I received a phone call from the parents of one of our beloved missionaries informing me about the death of his sister. I remember in the tenderness of that moment that missionary and I discussed God's marvelous plan of salvation for his children and how this knowledge would comfort him. Although he was stunned and saddened by that adversity, this missionary, through his tears and with faith in God, rejoiced in his sister's life. He expressed an unwavering confidence in the tender mercies of the Lord. Resolutely, he told me that he would continue to serve his mission with all faith and diligence in order to be worthy of the promises that God had for him and his family. In this time of need, that faithful missionary renewed his commitment to serve the Lord with faith and with all diligence. Brothers and sisters, if we are not rooted by steadfast trust in God and the desire to serve Him, the painful experiences of mortality can lead us to feel as though we are burdened by a heavy yoke, and we can lose the motivation to live the gospel fully. Without faith, we will end up losing the capacity to appreciate those designs of our God regarding the things that will happen later in our life. In these moments of trial, the adversary, he is always on the lookout, tries to use our logic and reasoning against us. He tries to convince us that it is useless to leave the principles of the gospel. Please remember that the logic of the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are not foolishness unto him. Remember that Satan is an enemy of God, and he fighteth against him continually, and he inviteth and enticeth us to sin, and to do that which is evil continually. We must not allow him to deceive us, for when we do, we falter in our faith and lose the power to obtain God's blessings. If we are steadfast and not waver in our faith, the Lord will increase our capacity to raise ourselves above the challenges of life. We will be enabled to subdue negative impulses 
and will develop the capacity to overcome even what appears to be overwhelming obstacles. This was what enabled King Lehi's people to make a spectacular escape from their Lamanites' captivity. Brothers and sisters, I invite you to place all of your trust in God and in the teachings of our prophets. I invite you to renew your covenants with God, to serve Him with all your heart, regardless of the complex situations of life. I testify that by the power of our unwavering faith in Christ, you will become free of the captivity of sin, of doubt, of unbelief, of unhappiness, of suffering, and you will receive all of the promised blessings from our Heavenly Father. I testify that God is real. He lives. He loves us. He listens to our prayers in our moments of happiness and in our moments of doubt, sadness, and desperation. I testify that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. He is the Redeemer. I close my remarks today with the lyrics of the hymn, Not Now, But in the Coming Years, found in the Portuguese hymnal. If clouds instead of sun spread shadows over our heart, if pain afflicts us, never mind. We will soon know who thou art. Jesus guide us with his hand, and he'll tell us why. If we listen to his voice, he'll tell us by and by. Confide in God unwaveringly, and let him not sustain. Sing his glory endlessly, for later he will explain. I say these things in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Paul shared a wonderful message of hope with the Corinthians. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. What was the source of Paul's hope? Listen to his response. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Even in the most difficult and darkest of times, there is light and goodness all around us. Last October, President Uchtdorf reminded us, we are surrounded by such an astonishing wealth of light and truth that I wonder if we truly appreciate what we have." End quote. However, the adversary would rather have us focus on mists of darkness, which blindeth the eyes, hardeneth hearts, and leadeth away. Nevertheless, with perfect understanding of the challenges of our day, the Lord promises, "...that which is of God is light, and he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light." And that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. We are children of God. Receiving light, continuing in God, and receiving more light is what we are created to do. From the very beginning, we followed the light. We followed our Heavenly Father and His plan. Seeking the light is in our spiritual DNA. I heard this eternal truth taught beautifully in an unexpected place. 
While I was working for a large bank, I was invited to attend an executive program at the University of Michigan. During the program, Professor Kim Cameron taught the concept of positive leadership and its heliotropic effect. He explained, quote, this refers to the tendency in all living systems towards positive energy, light, and away from negative energy, darkness. From single-cell organisms to complex human systems, everything alive has an inherent inclination toward the positive and away from the negative, end quote. Supported by a wealth of studies, he also focused on three critical components of a successful workplace culture, compassion, forgiveness, and gratitude. It makes perfect sense that as people turn toward the positive, light, the attributes perfectly exemplified by the light of the world, Jesus Christ, are present. Brothers and sisters, please take comfort that there is light available to us. May I suggest three areas where we will always find light? Number one, the light of the Church. The Church is a beacon of light to a darkening world. This is a wonderful time to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The Church is stronger than it has ever been and quite literally grows stronger each day as new members join us, new congregations are formed, new missionaries are called, and new territories are open to the gospel. We see those who have slipped from activity in the Church for a time returning as the rescue envisioned by President Monson brings daily miracles. I recently visited with youth in Paraguay, Uruguay, Chile, and Argentina during their For the Strength of Youth conferences. Thousands and thousands of young men and young women spent a week strengthening their love of the Savior, then returned home to their families and friends radiating the light and love of Christ. Look, the Church will always have its critics. It has been that way from the beginning and will continue to the end. But we cannot allow such criticism to dull our sensitivity to the light that is available to us. Recognizing the light and seeking after it will qualify us for even more light. In a darkening world, the light of the Church will shine brighter and brighter until the perfect day. Number two, the light of the gospel. The light of the gospel is the path that shineth more and more unto the perfect day, and it shines brightest in our families and in temples throughout the world. Preach My Gospel states, quote, Through the light of the gospel, families can resolve misunderstandings, contentions, and challenges. Families torn by discord can be healed through repentance, forgiveness, faith in the power, and faith in the power of the atonement of Jesus Christ, end quote. Now, more than ever, our families must be sources of great light to everyone around us. And families increase in light as they increase in love and kindness. As we establish families of faith, repentance, forgiveness, respect, love, and compassion, we will feel an increase in love towards the Savior and towards one another. The family will grow stronger and the light in each of us will grow brighter. We read in the Bible dictionary that only the home can compare with the temple in sacredness. 
We now have 155 operating temples and more coming soon. More and more families are sealed for time and all eternity. Members are submitting more and more names of ancestors to the temple to perform their saving ordinances. We truly are experiencing great joy and celebration on both sides of the veil. In a darkening world, the light of the gospel will shine brighter and brighter until the perfect day. Number three, the light of Christ. You cannot speak of the light in the world without speaking of the light of the world, Jesus Christ. A manifestation of a loving Heavenly Father is that everyone who comes to this life is blessed with the light of Christ to help them return home. President Boyd K. Packer taught, quote, The Spirit of Christ is always there. The light of Christ is as universal as sunlight itself. Wherever there is human life, there is the Spirit of Christ. End quote. The light of Christ inviteth and enticeth to do good continually and prepares all who seek goodness and truth to receive the Holy Ghost. The Savior teaches that He is the light that enlighteneth your eyes, quickeneth your understandings, and giveth life to all things. The light of Christ will help us see others through the Savior's eyes. We will be more loving and understanding of the struggles of others. It will help us be more patient with those who may not worship as we do or serve as we might. It will help us understand the great plan of happiness more fully and see how we all fit into that great loving plan. It gives life, meaning, and purpose to all that we do. Now, with all of the happiness that will come to us as we more fully understand the light of Christ, it will not match the joy that we feel when we see the light of Christ working in others, family, friends, and even complete strangers. I felt that joy when I heard about the efforts of a brave group of firefighters who fought to save a burning stake center in Southern California in 2015. As the fire raged, a battalion commander called an LDS friend to ask where the sacred relics and sacrament cups were kept so they could be saved. His friend assured him that there were no sacred relics and that the sacrament cups were actually very, very replaceable. (laughs) But the the commander felt he should do more. So he sent firefighters back into the burning building to pull every painting of Christ off of the walls that they might be preserved. They even placed one in the fire truck in the hope that the firefighters might be watched over. I was truly touched by the commander's kindness, goodness, and sensitivity to the light during a dangerous and difficult time. In a darkening world, the light of Christ will shine brighter and brighter until the perfect day. I again echo the words of Paul, let us put on the armor of light. I testify of Christ. He is the light of the world. May we be strengthened by the light that is available to us through greater participation at church and greater application of gospel principles in our families. May we see the light of Christ in others constantly and help them 
see it in themselves. As we receive that light, we will be blessed with more light, even until the perfect day when we again see the Father of lights, our Heavenly Father. I so testify in the holy name of the light of the world, even Jesus Christ. Amen.
We thank all who have participated in this session and express gratitude to the Mormon Tabernacle Choir for the beautiful music they have provided this morning. Our concluding speaker for this session will be President Russell M. Nelson, President of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Following his remarks, the choir will close this meeting by singing, Rejoice, the Lord is King. The benediction will then be offered by Elder George F. Ceballos of the Seventy. President Nelson. My dear brothers and sisters, we live in a most difficult dispensation. Challenges, controversies, and complexities swirl around us. These turbulent times were foreseen by the Savior. He warned us that in our day the adversary would stir up anger in the hearts of men and lead them astray. Yet our Heavenly Father never intended that we would deal with the maze of personal problems and social issues on our own. God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son to help us. And His Son, Jesus Christ, gave His life for us, all so that we could have access to godly power, power sufficient to deal with the burdens, obstacles, and temptations of our day. Today I would like to speak about how we can draw into our lives the power of our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. We begin by learning about Him. It is impossible for us to be saved in ignorance. The more we know about the Savior's ministry and mission, the more we understand His doctrine and what He did for us, the more we know that He can provide the power that we need for our lives. Earlier this year, I asked the young adults of the Church to consecrate a portion of their time each week to study everything Jesus said and did as recorded in the standard works. I invited them to let the scriptural citations about Jesus Christ in the topical guide become their personal core curriculum. I gave that challenge because I had already accepted it myself. I read and underlined every verse cited about Jesus Christ as listed under 57 subtitles in the topical guide. When I finished that exciting exercise, my wife asked me what impact it had on me. I told her, I am a different man. I felt a renewed devotion to Him as I read again in the Book of Mormon the Savior's own statement about His mission in mortality. He declared, I came into the world to do the will of my Father because my Father sent me, and my Father sent me that I might be lifted up upon the cross. <clears throat> as Latter-day Saints, we refer to His mission as 
the atonement of Jesus Christ, which made resurrection a reality for all and made eternal life possible for those who repent of their sins and receive and keep essential ordinances and covenants. It is doctrinally incomplete to speak of the Lord's atoning sacrifice by shortcut phrases such as the atonement or the enabling power of the atonement or applying the atonement or being strengthened by the atonement. These expressions present a real risk of misdirecting faith by treating the event as if it had living existence and capabilities independent of our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Under the Father's great eternal plan, it is the Savior who suffered. It is the Savior who broke the bands of death. It is the Savior who paid the price for our sins and transgressions and blots them out on condition of our repentance. It is the Savior who delivers us from physical and spiritual death. There is no amorphous entity called the Atonement upon which we may call for succor, healing, forgiveness, or power. Jesus Christ is the source. Sacred terms such as Atonement and Resurrection describe what the Savior did according to the Father's plan, so that we may live with hope in this life and gain eternal life in the world to come. The Savior's atoning sacrifice, the central act of all human history, is best understood and appreciated when we expressly and clearly connect it to Him. The importance of the Savior's mission was emphasized by the Prophet Joseph Smith, who declared emphatically that the fundamental principles of our religion are the testimony of the apostles and prophets concerning Jesus Christ, that He died, was buried, and rose again the third day and ascended into heaven, and all other things which pertain to our religion are only appendages to it. It was this very statement of the prophet that provided the incentive for fifteen prophets, seers, and revelators to issue and sign their testimony to commemorate the two thousandth anniversary of the Lord's birth. That historic testimony is titled The Living Christ. Many members have memorized its truths. Others barely know of its existence. As you seek to learn more about Jesus Christ, I urge you to study the living Christ. As we invest time in learning about the Savior and His atoning sacrifice, we are drawn to participate in another key element to accessing His power. We choose to have faith in Him and follow Him. True disciples of Jesus Christ are willing to stand out 
speak up and be different from the people of the world. They are undaunted, devoted, and courageous. I learned of such disciples during a recent assignment in Mexico, where I met with government officials as well as leaders of other religious denominations. Each thanked me for our members' heroic and successful efforts to protect and preserve strong marriages and families in their country. There is nothing easy or automatic about becoming such powerful disciples. Our focus must be riveted on the Savior and His gospel. It is mentally rigorous to strive to look unto Him in every thought. But when we do, our doubts and fears flee. Recently, I learned of a fearless young Laurel. She was invited to participate in a statewide competition for her high school on the same evening she had committed to participate in a stake Relief Society meeting. When she realized the conflict and explained to competition officials that she would need to leave the competition early to attend an important meeting, she was told she would be disqualified if she did so. What did this Latter-day Laurel do? She kept her commitment to participate in the Relief Society meeting. As promised, she was disqualified from the statewide competition. When asked about her decision, she replied simply, Well, the Church is more important, isn't it? Faith in Jesus Christ propels us to do things we otherwise would not do. Faith that motivates us to action gives us more access to His power. We also increase the Savior's power in our lives when we make sacred covenants and keep those covenants with precision. Our covenants bind us to Him and give us godly power. As faithful disciples, we repent and follow Him into the waters of baptism. We walk along the covenant path to receive other essential ordinances. And gratefully, God's plan provides for those blessings to be extended to ancestors who died without an opportunity to obtain them in, during their mortal lives. Covenant-keeping men and women seek for ways to keep themselves unspotted from the world so there will be nothing blocking their access to the Savior's power. One faithful wife and mother wrote this recently. Quote, These are troubled and perilous times. How blessed we are to have the increased knowledge of the plan of salvation and the inspired guidance from loving prophets, apostles, and leaders to help us sail these stormy seas safely. We stopped our habit of turning on the radio in the morning. Instead, we now listen to a general conference talk on our mobile phones every morning as we prepare ourselves for another day. Close quote. 
Another element in drawing the Savior's power into our lives is to reach up to Him in faith. Such reaching requires diligent, focused effort. Do you remember the biblical story of the woman who suffered for 12 years with a debilitating problem? She exercised great faith in the Savior, exclaiming, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. This faithful, focused woman needed to stretch as far as she could to access his power. Her physical stretching was symbolic of her spiritual stretching. Many of us have cried out from the depths of our hearts a variation of this woman's words. If I could spiritually stretch enough to draw the Savior's power into my life, I would know how to handle my heart-wrenching situation. I would know what to do, and I would have the power to do it. When you reach up for the Lord's power in your life with that same intensity that a drowning person has when grasping and gasping for air, power from Jesus Christ will be yours. When the Savior knows you truly want to reach up to Him, when He can feel that the greatest desire of your heart is to draw His power into your life, you will be led by the Holy Ghost to know exactly what you should do. When you spiritually stretch beyond anything you have ever done before, then His power will flow into you. And then you will understand the deep meaning of words we sing in the hymn, The Spirit of God. The Lord is extending the saints' understanding. The knowledge and power of God are expanding. The veil or the earth is beginning to burst. The gospel of Jesus Christ is filled with His power, which is available to every earnestly seeking daughter or son of God. It is my testimony that when we draw His power into our lives, both He and we will rejoice. As one of His special witnesses, I declare that God lives. Jesus is the Christ. His Church has been restored to the earth. God's prophet upon the earth today is President Thomas S. Monson whom I sustain with all my heart. I so testify with my expression of love and blessing for each of you. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen.
our dear Heavenly Father. At the conclusion of this wonderful session of General Conference, we express our gratitude for thy Son, Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the light of our lives. We thank thee, Father, for the inspired and inspiring messages that have been delivered in this occasion. And now, dear Father, we ask thee to help us to apply these principles of thy gospel that have been taught to us, that have been reminded to us, that we have felt in this occasion. We also ask thee, Father, to bless all of thy children who are passing through difficult times in their lives, who are facing serious illnesses, who are facing death, who are facing persecution. Dear Father, we love thee, and we ask thee to bless our wonderful and beloved missionaries around the world so they can continue preaching the restored gospel. We leave this session and this prayer in the sacred name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a broadcast of the 187th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Speakers were selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. Music was provided by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. This broadcast has been furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited.